The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Spies Like Us podcast. That is, of course, the podcast where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens large and small. I'm Todd. With me, as usual, is Fred. Say hi to the nerds, Fred. <laughs> hi, nerds, Fred. <laughs> that reminds me of the old and Martin. Say goodnight, Dick. Goodnight, Dick. Sure, sure. Goodnight, Gracie. Uh, tell, <laughs> yeah. tell, tell the nerds what we're going to nerd out about tonight. Well, we're going to... When Todd and I first met, we met about the TV series, Man From U.N.C.L.E., and we had a good discussion about that. I was around for when... The Man from Uncle came out, which really was the first take on The Man from Uncle. Um, and it got kind of uh, spoofy later on, but not quite as spoofy as Get Smart. And we had a good discussion of that. So, uh, about the TV series. And then we, uh, the uh, movie came out. And so we thought we'd talk about that. This is a 2015 uh, United, American Hollywood movie, uh, back to the notes, which is directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, it's released in 2015. It is, of course, based on the 1964 television series. It is a work of fiction with the events placed in 1963. That's interesting. So like one year before the, the TV series uh, you know, started out. Featured agencies. We have the CIA, KGB, and an organization of Nazi sympathizers that are funded by a certain billionaire married couple who function as our villains in this film. Um, there's also involvement of British intelligence, which only if you look very carefully at the end credits is suggested to be MI5's special uh, F branch. Um, but as uh, we're going to talk about later in the tradecraft, I believe that Waverly's operations that we see in the film would be much more uh, akin to MI6. As well, not to only, yeah, not only that, but there's a blurring of the lines of uncle, right? It's, it's uh, at the very end, uh, without getting, jumping the gun too much, um, our heroes are recruited into this new organization called Uncle. So I think there's a blurring of lines between the British organization M15 or M16 and Uncle itself that Waverly will be in charge of. And that would be the same Waverly uh, that headed up the New York office of Uncle in the TV series. Okay. Uh, right. In the TV series, uh, it but it is supposed to be an international agency. Right. And of course, it's a right. fictional agency. Of right. Course. So, Mr. Um, Waverly was the head of the New York office, and and some of the shows would show them going uh, to like the Rome office, and you know, all across the world. And there'd be a like a Mr. Waverly there, a head of it there, and they'd sometimes, uh, you know, deal with those heads of the different. Do I remember a scene from the TV series where Waverly was talking to a whole bunch of the different directors? Of yeah, Uncle yeah. on a whole different yeah. screens from all around the world. Yes. Awesome. Uncle, of course, stands for United Command for Law and Enforcement. Um, 
which uh, let's see, had people something about the UN people people had uh, they put in a thing they specified what it meant. I think you said because they were worried that people were assuming that it was uh, stood for United Nations and that it was right. Uh, that so there was some, yeah, that it was some sort of a branch sanctioned by the United Nations. So it became a joke at the end. At every episode, they would say, we wish to thank the United Network Command for Law Enforcement. Some people thought it was like a Interpol kind of thing, too. Okay, okay. Uh, but it became kind of a joke. In the TV series, Uncle's Perennial Nemesis is a Spectre-like organization, also fictional, known as Thrush. Thrush does not make an appearance in this film. Um, and... The TV series. You tell us, tell us a little more about it. Ran from 1964 to 1968. Yeah, it started out in '64, black and white, um, with kind of a Cold War emphasis, and a lot of it dealt with um, Eastern Europe. Um, in fact, one of the episodes had a reanimation of of Hitler. Um, so the first one was black and white, and it was uh, kind of James Bond-ish, kind of um, Eastern Europe um, kind of thing. And then it became, um, as it, uh, the second year, it became uh, came in color. And then Thrush got more involved, which was, as Todd said, a specter-like organization with um, madmen who are trying to take over the world. Uh, and it got campier and campier with the third season. Um, and they, the campiness was in vogue because of Batman on ABC, which oh. was going on at the same time. It was very popular in Batman, um, but it didn't work with the spy series. It got a little too ridiculous with sneak, you know, they were trying to stop a gas that Thrush had vetted that made people sneeze to death. They had Napoleon dancing the Watusi with a gorilla, right? Uh, and it got a bit ridiculous. And by the fourth season, they tried to write the ship and get a little more serious, but it was too late. They lost their audience and they had to cancel mid-season. Yeah, I believe it was also the return of Gunsmoke back to television that, that helped uh, knock Man from Uncle uh, out of its or, time. Out of its or Bonanza, one of them. Yeah, Gunsmoke or Bonanza. There was also a one-season spinoff series called The Girl from yeah. Uncle. In 1966, mm -hmm. we're going to talk more about that later. There's an interesting thing that Fred noticed about this film related to uh, the girl from Uncle. Um, I feel yeah, I just want to. Yes. And I just wanted to mention this was a little tidbit that escaped my notice when we did our podcast on the Man from Uncle television series. We covered one one season, one episode from each of the series. And one of the episodes featured instead of our usual protagonists napoleon solo and Ilya kuryakov kuryakin kuryakin yeah right it featured some other agents of uncle and they were played by uh marianne mobley and yep. norman fell who was right. the uh the first landlord from uh i guess people of my generation would remember him most from being the first landlord on the threes company mr roper uh, sitcom mr roper yeah. was he mr roper i th and then, I, I think I right think. right okay yeah you're right you're right mr roper um 
So anyways, while looking uh, more into this film, I realized that that girl, that agent, that is April Dancer. That is the girl from Uncle. So that right. episode and, yeah, featured but as a she soft... Was a, yeah, she was a, a kind of a phenomena. She was Miss America, right? Uh, and the actor. She, she, yeah, she, yeah, Marianne Mobley, right? And so she had kind of credentials on her own, but she would not appear in the spinoff series. And that would be Stephanie Powers, who would later go on to be of heart to heart fame. Stephanie Powers would be the girl from Uncle April Dancer um, that uh, who coined the phrase, um, who was the James Bond guy? Uh, The writer, Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming Mm -hmm. coined her name, uh, April Dancer. Right. He was a collaborator on the creation of this show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another interesting thing that I escaped my notice when we did our uh, podcast episode on the TV series is that that was MGM's television branch that created these series. We talk a lot about how everyone back then was scrambling to uh, try to replicate or, or get their own version of James Bond on screen. Um it's just interesting. Man from Uncle is not a competing company. It's also MGM. So, you know, they could have just decided to make a James Bond TV series. Uh, but uh, they they went this route instead. This film, however, is not produced by MGM. Uh, it's produced by Rat Pack Dune Entertainment and Davis Entertainment. The rights to the original TV series are currently held by Turner Entertainment, and they were also involved... They got to have a seat at the table uh, in, in consultation on this film. Um, there yeah, were I think some... that's why on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, every once in a while you'll see a Man from Uncle movie, which is kind of interesting because back in that day, they made theatrically released movies. And the way they did it is when there were part two episodes, they combined uh-huh. them and then shot a few more scenes and turned them into feature-length movies that were released, uh, especially big in the overseas market. And they had real generic um, titles like The Spy with the Green Hat or <laughs> The Karate Killers, you know. And they were just really kind of generic um, write-off titles. But they were essentially um, parts one and two of um, the TV series that had two, two parts to them. And they reshot a couple other scenes, a little racier with uh, um, like the sexual uh, scenes. They weren't too bad, but they were a little racier than uh, what was on the TV. So uh, there would be a few theatrical releases um, based on combining the two two-part series during the 60s. There was eventually at least one made-for-TV original story that they came up with reuniting the two actors. I think the last one that they did together was called The 15 Years Later Affair. Yeah, it was done on CBS, not NBC. Um, It it featured both David McKellen and Napoleon and uh, Robert Vaughn, which was good. But the odd thing about it was they except for the beginning and the end, they separated our heroes throughout most of the movie, which didn't capitalize on their chemistry that they always had 
in most of the episodes, you know, their buddy movie kind of rapport. And that was a big criticism of it. The other little tidbit was George Lansenby of the James Bond, who played James Bond on uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service. He makes single, a cameo in Single Bond movie. And he makes a cameo in it. And there's he actually says, shaken, not stirred. And on his license plate, it says JB, standing for James Bond. So they make a big deal out of that, too, which is kind of interesting. But okay. it's, it was a made-for-TV movie. Okay. Well, they can get away with that because, again, it's both the TV series and the both the Man from Uncle and James Bond are both MGM properties. Uh, but we get after that, there's a 32 year gap before this intellectual property attempts a, a, a reboot in this film. Uh, a guy named John Davis obtained the rights for a film adaptation in 1993. The project fell into a production limbo state for, well, decades, literally, uh, with various directors and writers signing off and on until finally landing on Guy Ritchie as director. Davis estimates the project saw as many as 14 scripts over the 20 years that he was trying to bring this project to the screen. Yeah, and, and I followed it all that time, and I was really disappointed because at the very least, I was hoping for a cameo with Robert Vaughn and... David McKellen, or if, say, one of them in their older age could have played a Mr. Waverly kind of a thing, but they waited too long. So for Robert Vaughn to have died, uh, David McKellen, we know, we all know, is still alive as Ducky on NCIS. Right. And working. And I was, alive and working. Yeah. And I was hoping they'd uh, approach him, uh, at least in a kind of a funny Hitchcockian walk on. And maybe they did, and he refused. I don't know. But I was a little disappointed there that they waited so long for not having either one of those be a cameo or maybe a part in it, like I say, to play the Mr. Waverly. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also disappointed that they didn't play the theme music, even if they doctored up a, a little bit. Um, the music they did play was um, authentic 60-wise. I give them that. But I was kind of hoping they at least use the theme music at the beginning and the end, but they did. Cause I yes. love them. I love the, the man from uncle music. I just love it. I know you do. Uh, not, and not just the theme music, but the music throughout. And I have the soundtracks. Um, so yeah, Guy Ritchie, uh, a director that uh, definitely likes to write his own scripts. Um, he wrote all of his movies, except for the Sherlock Holmes films that he did. Um, actually, I'm, I'm questioning that right now because he also directed Aladdin, and I'm not sure he directed that screenplay. In the case of this movie, he shares the screenwriting credit with Lionel Wigram, who is not known for script writing except for helping on this movie and also on Guy Ritchie's 2017 King Arthur movie. What Lionel Wigram is most known for is being the producer of all the Harry Potter films. Um... So, yeah, before we talk about the tradecraft, we do like to talk a little bit about the talent and careers of the people involved in, in the material that we're discussing. Um, Guy Ritchie, uh, I'm a pretty fair, fairly big fan. I mean, I guess it would be more likely to say that I'm a massive fan of Snatch and a pretty big fan of his other films. He's got a style. It's very immediately identifiable. Uh, which is something I personally like in a director. 
some of his trademarks include uh, usually very innovative and dynamic title sequences, uh, larger-than-life characters with crazy nicknames who often talk very fast and uh, are elaborately descriptive. Um, I'm not the word is not verbose, but uh, it's it's intricate. His his dialogue is very very intricate. He also likes to use a lot of fast cuts, split screens, and slow motion speed ramps. We'll see some of those in this film. Mostly what he does, his main wheelhouse is uh, ensemble cast criminal fiasco stories. Um, have you seen Snatch? What do you what do you what do you have to say yeah. for, for Richie? I I liked it, but the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, trademarks is I noticed there were three examples in this of <laughs> foreground background. All right, something going on in the foreground and something funny going on in the background. There's three examples of that that are very funny, and I was wanted to ask you if that was a a characteristic of Richie. I don't know. Broadly speaking, I can immediately think of one scene. And that's the scene where we uh, there was a car crash and they had the, the Boris the Blade character. This is from Snatch. Boris the Blade mm-hmm. character was in the trunk of the car and they mm-hmm. cracked, They had a car crash. And we have a scene inside the car, I believe, where in the background we can see that Boris has gotten out of the trunk, but he's got a bag over his head and his hands are cuffed and he's just kind of jerking mm-hmm. around trying to get his bearings Uh very, yeah, very similar um, to the thing you're talking about Woody, here. Woody Allen, Woody Allen has always used that element uh, in his films uh-huh. with something in the foreground and something um, <laughs> extremely funny in the background that kind of, you know, contradicts the whole thing. And uh, like I said, there were three examples in this one that I thought were very funny. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, Guy Ritchie, of course, his first film was Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I also think that one's pretty rewatchable. I like his Sherlock Holmes films uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. And yeah. uh, I recently watched The Gentleman, uh, which I liked a lot. Uh, apparently, I'm not the only one that felt like this was Ritchie returning to his wheelhouse and doing movies more like Snatch. And that was part of the reason I recommended we do Men From Uncle here on this podcast as our next topic. Uh, let's talk about actors for a moment. Now, this is one of those cases where the list of actors that's uh, listed in Wikipedia is so long that I kind of question it. You know, like, basically, it's everyone. It's fucking everyone. Um, so when it says these actors were given consideration. I don't really know. What does consideration mean? Does that mean just their name was mentioned once or twice? Uh, We do have a couple interesting ones, though, that we know uh, very likely could have ended up being Napoleon Solo in this film. Uh, The first actor to show real interest was George Clooney. I think he would have been great. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, because... The original Napoleon, played by Robert Vaughn, was a was a semi was a suave, debonair kind of James Bondish kind of a guy, mm-hmm. where and appealed to kind of like the older women, especially from an from another era. Like Robert Vaughn came out of the fifties and played in different movies there. Where David McCallum had uh, acting pedigree too, but he had the kind of the longish blonde beetle haircut and. Um, was also even though he was a bit older 
was featured in some of the teen magazines and Tiger Beat and so on. So there was that distinction uh, between the two. But yes, Napoleon and I think George Clooney would have fit the bill as like a suave, semi suave, smooth kind of character with the ladies. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, he bowed out due to a back injury in 2011. That was before Guy Ritchie had come on board. Uh, when Guy Ritchie did come on board in March 13th, the lead horse for the role was Tom Cruise. I really do like Tom Cruise. In the case of Tom Cruise, I would say no. I don't I don't want to see Tom Cruise as Napoleon Solo. Uh, I don't think that's the right fit. I think George Clooney is much, much closer. Um, yeah, well, my... Uh, I. <laughs> probably so i just am so sick of tom cruise being in so many things i thought he was miscast as lestat in the vampire lestat and i also thought even though he's a pretty good actor he was miscast as jack reacher uh, who was a very large military bearing kind of a guy but i know he you know a lot of uh, <laughs> film directors want to typecat or want to place him in these movies because he carries He's popular, right? right. Um, as far as Napoleon, I don't know. There's also the fact, I mean, he has already done, uh, he's already been in some Mission Impossible movies by this point. Right. And I, I think I think you really want to try to stick to one, being one yeah. super famous spy at a time. The guy we get instead for this film is Henry Cavill, who is the most recent Superman. I'm not sure if he's slated to do any more Superman roles. Uh who was strongly considered alongside Daniel Craig for the James Bond slot uh, with the Casino Royale director, Martin Campbell later saying that uh, he thought Cav it was down to Cavill and Craig, that those, those were the, the final two names in the end, they decided that he was too young and uh, by his own admission, not in good enough shape. Uh, the James Bond slot of course is open again, leading Henry Cavill fans to reignite their hopes of a Henry Cavill bond. But uh, my understanding is that uh, although he was in the running for a while lately, uh, uh, his, his stock, the, the Vegas, the Vegas odds makers are, uh, are betting against him. Uh, right and now. his stature, his stature right now, and I'm sure in the future, he'd be priced right out of Napoleon Solo. He's, He's bigger now, and he would be bigger then. And I see him only in big blockbuster Hollywood movies. I don't think they could afford him for Napoleon uh, if they were going to make another one, okay. unless he'd agreed to, you know, to whatever their terms were, and and felt he had uh, ownership with the series, you know. Right. Yeah, I feel like he's too big, to, too big to be Bond. Um, At least. Oh, I, oh yeah, I was saying he's Napoleon. Got, he's got, he's got I'm talking face. about, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about Napoleon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and yeah, and and I, I don't mean and uh, okay. I guess is, I don't mean size. I don't mean size, right? I right, mean okay. they couldn't afford him. Yeah, I understand. Right. Okay. I do mean size. I think <laughs> I think he's. I mean, he's pretty ridiculously tall. So is Army Hammer. So is Elizabeth Debicki, by the way. This is a movie with some very tall people in it. Um, yeah. Speaking of Army Hammer, who is who we get for um, Ilya, Ilya Kuryakin. 
Uh, I'd never seen him before. This still remains the only time I've ever seen him in a film. I didn't even know what he looked like. I've uh, seen him in The so Long this... Ranger with Johnny Depp. Okay. I think that's the only one I can think of. How did you like that movie? I heard it I heard it sucked. Yeah. Yeah, it's nothing to write home about. I can barely remember too much. Seems like a movie that really doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. Um, I uh, had heard some, you know, I don't, I don't follow tabloid stuff. Obviously it kind of leaked into my attention, something about that he's basically canceled and nobody will work with him anymore. Uh, as part mm-hmm. of the research for this podcast, I did dip in and look at it a little i very quickly decided i didn't want to hear any more uh, about it it's the yep. allegations are are pretty fucking terrifying weird yep um but i don't know the facts i don't need to know the facts it's not not my business um army hammer is really good in this film i mean i i'm, I'm i hope it's still okay to say that uh, you know, an actor's work is good. Um, yeah. I think he's, he's got a better, he's got a more convincing Russian accent than Ilya, than David McCallum. David McCallum kind of kept his Scottish accent right. in the series. Right. Of course, we had James Bond running around with his, um, well, of course, yeah. he, he could be Scottish because he's English. Yeah. But, um, right. But when he played uh, the captain of the Russian submarine in the hunt for Red October, that was kind of a stretch. Yeah, big time, big time. <laughs> that's just like hey we don't we don't give a fuck just just take it right um sean connery uh army hammer is the only cast member this is this is weird to me he's the only cast member who actually went back and watched the tv show in preparation yeah. for this role i think and that's that showed criminal but, that the other people didn't right that really showed in the scene when he's kind of babysitting Gabby, right? Uh-huh. And she's drunk and dancing. That one of the scenes where she's dancing in the background and he's in the foreground and she's trying to loosen him up. There were many scenes like that in the series. So that doesn't surprise me that he did his homework. In fact, one of the ones that we discussed um, had that. It was an Asian girl yes. uh, with Ilya in a room and she's trying to do the same thing, loosen him up. So, yeah, that made sense to me that he did his homework because there were a lot of those type of scenes in the TV series. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do remember. I do remember that scene. Um, and in Elia, in the series, sure. Elia, the David McCollum character, never played, even though all the women throw, threw themselves at him, he never really succumbed to it. It was always Napoleon kissing the girls and making out and all the innuendos left. Ilya was like, you could see the girls coming after him, but he never succumbed to it, at least from my memory. And I've seen most of the episodes. So that was, um, that was kind of true to form too, with Army Hammer, not really succumbing to Gabby's uh, advances. Right. Possibly uh, making making him all the more tantalizing. Apparently, he was a very big hit with the ladies uh, in the television show. Oh, one yeah. more, one more character recurring from the television show is Waverly, who, in this case, like like you said, yeah, it would have been great to get McCallum 
in in something like this uh or just you know like you said like even just a, a little walk-on cameo yeah put him in the background yeah. put him in a cafe somewhere you know for only nerds like me to spot to right sure yeah um who we get instead is hugh grant who uh, Guy Ritchie will use again in The Gentleman. Hugh Grant uh, has made, by now it's been like quite a while since he made this like really though, cool and amazing pivot in his career from being like a stuttering kind of bumbly cutie pie in uh, romantic comedies to this uh, really wonderfully sarcastic asshole kind of kind of vibe that he- Yeah, and uh, I'm glad here. they used another Brit uh, because Mr. Waverly was a Brit in uh, the series, uh, Leo, played by Leo G. G. Carroll, who was a longtime um, Hollywood great actor who played in a bunch of Hitchcock movies. Uh, mm. If you look him up, he's got he's got quite of uh, quite a resume of films. Uh, very dignified man, but he'd also had these little dry, sardonic jabs, especially at Napoleon for his. Um, passes at the ladies, especially the secretaries and uncle headquarters, you know, when they'd walk in and fit him with the badges, he'd always kind of like whisper sweet nothings in their ear and they would coyly smile back, things you couldn't get away with now. Um, but Mr. Waverly would always be teasing him about that or bringing him up on it. Uh-huh. Right. Um, just, just one more note on Hugh Grant. What do you think? Uh, do you think we could maybe try to get this guy into consideration for playing the next M in, in when we, when we start doing some more James Bond films, what do you think? Uh, he'd have to that? be, he'd have to be a bit more stoic. You know, most of the M's are pretty stoic, stoic and they don't have that. Um, I don't know. They don't have that um, kind of humor or style and they're, they're pretty tough. And I'm not sure he could do that because <laughs> he always has that, a bit of a shitty grin on him, you know, which is charming in many ways for a lot of roles. But yeah, I don't picture him. Some, like I say, somebody a bit more stoic. I got you for M. I got you. You know, right. to, not, to not take Bond's bullshit. You know, the uh... and not being amused, not by being <laughs> amused. You know, that was by all of Bond's. You know, whether he's flirting with Money Penny or whatever. You know, he didn't have any time for that. Right. So. Maybe Grant could pull it off. I don't know. Our other two main characters in this film. Uh, okay, so that's the three recurring characters from the film. But this next one is an interesting case. She's technically not a character from the TV series. But in a way, as you're going to point out, she kind of is. This is uh, Alicia Vikander playing Gaby Teller. Uh, this actress also played a dual role as Essel and the lady in the, the Green Knight movie, uh, which I liked quite a lot. And um, she plays a really interest. She fits a very interesting slot in this film, which you brought to my attention. So I want you to explain it to our okay. audience. What is so cool about this character in this movie? Well, it's twofold. It's twofold. Okay. In every uncle episode, there was always an innocent that usually ended up getting swept up in the adventures with Napoleon and Ilya. Usually it was some kind of a suburban housewife that was always befuddled, but found a way to um, get involved by, you know, in their ruse and playing somebody that would help them infiltrate 
whatever organization they were trying to get into. And it was always kind of a comic relief kind of a character to bring the audience along too, so it didn't get too serious. And that part of the campiness came out with that. And usually female, and yes. usually getting kind of uh, pulled into a will they won't they romantic kind of orbit around it. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes okay, so they would even uh, be brought into um, Mr. Waverly's office, and he would they'd be brief, like Jill Ireland who ended up marrying David uh, McKellen. And she also married Char Charles Bronson as well. Uh, she was in a few of them. And she was an actress, uh, quite an accomplished actress, even on her own, a blonde beauty. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but Joe Ireland, she played a few of those. And um, lots of times they were kind of like bimbo kind of characters. Now, so I, when I originally saw that, I thought, okay, she's the um, proverbial um innocent here that's going to be swept up in the adventure which by itself which by itself shows a really deep appreciation of the source material because that flew yep. right over my head you know only being tangentially aware of of the man from uncle uh i didn't catch that but as, as the moment you said it i was like oh my god he's right and what else is but that? Do you want me to talk about the other yeah, bit that's yeah. kind of a surprise at the we're end? We're gonna okay. We'll throw out the quick. This is we're getting into spoiler territory, and we'll be for the rest of this right. episode. Okay, here we go. Um, in a really ironic way, we talked a little bit about the girl from Uncle, which was a spinoff, right? Uh huh. She's the girl from Uncle. She is the girl from Uncle because she's recruited by Mister Waverly, right? Uh -huh. to be involved in this, right? And and has been the entire weird. time. Yeah, yeah. Her her yeah. her uh playing the innocent character was a ruse. Exactly. And uh we don't when we hear her in the bed talking to somebody in room 304, that's when we know that she's in cahoots with someone else besides Napoleon and Ilya. But the really ironic thing about it is she doesn't, she doesn't actually have the name April Dancer, right? right? But the really ironic thing is, and they don't even say this really, but it's just me being an uncle nerd. The Girl from Uncle is sort of an afterthought, kind of a spinoff that came in the second year of Uncle. And here she's, the Girl from Uncle, <laughs> already in it before Napoleon and Elia are in. So in many ways as a fan... I'm not even sure this was a conscious thing. Many ways as a fan, I thought this was very ironic and paradoxical that the girl from uncle was in uncle before the men from uncle. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Of course. Right? Still, I think it's a great twist. And again, I think it really shows some, some good appreciation of the source material. The more, a lot of these things I didn't really catch. It was only in discussion with you. We had a little pre-discussion on this, on this, and you pointed out a lot of. And I don't things, think, and yeah, just, and they I all just immediately yeah. started clicking to me, clicking, clicking. Yeah, yeah, and most people wouldn't get it if unless they were a nerd like me watching it back in the '60s and uh, knowing a bit of the background. Um, we get we get a female arch villain in this film. The character's name is Victoria uh, Vinciguerra. Um, she's, uh, we mentioned before, there's a married couple that's financing Nazi sympathizers. They're trying to build a nuclear bomb. Apparently she's the real brains 
behind the operation. She's played by Elizabeth DeBakey. Uh, we have got to talk to her about her on this podcast before when we covered the night manager and she was pretty damn amazing in Tenet. That is a film I want to talk about someday, but I'm frankly very intimidated, intimidated by trying to explain the plot of that movie. Um, she is currently uh, playing Princess Diana in the Crown TV series. Did you know that? Oh, no, I did not. Huh? Um, so I think it's kind of cool that she has so far uh, starred in three spy stories uh, and that, okay, no, this is what I'm impressed by. She's been in three spy stories that I know of so far. In two of them, she's playing the damsel in distress. In this one, she's playing the opposite. She's playing the ice queen uh, master villain. Uh, which is also a kind of role, sort of a kind of role that she played as an alien queen in Guardians of the Galaxy uh, 2. So, uh, you know, she's got some range. Uh, the camera loves yeah. her. Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of cool that she's got that kind of range. And I guess I didn't write this down, but I wanted to mention uh, there's at least a couple scenes where I think she is really channeling some James Bond level super villain energy yeah. yeah uh we've yep. never had we've never had a female super villain in james bond movies right it's always mm. a, i think it's always a man that's at the top pulling the strings we get some cool yeah, like, like Grace jones did some cool stuff uh how about octopussy i'm not sure who's the villain in that one i haven't seen it I think it was a, a woman, Octopussy. Okay. I'm just guessing. I'm not sure. Okay. But well, just, overall, yeah. just looking at this Elizabeth Debicki performance, I'm saying we should have more of them because I think she would make a great Bond, Bond villain. This, this film almost feels like an audition tape for her being a Bond villain. Mm -hmm. um, finally, I just want to mention Jared Harris, uh, who plays Solo's CIA handler. Uh, in this film, uh, he previously worked with uh, Guy Ritchie playing the Dr. Moriarty character in the Sherlock Holmes film. Um, and I just wanted to flag him out because he also plays a prominent role in a few seasons of my favorite television series of all time. That, of course, being The Expanse. Fred, have you ever seen The Expanse? No, I did not. Do you like science fiction? <laughs> yeah, I mean... You yeah. like Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. Game of yeah. Thrones in space. Boom. There's, there's okay. the elevator pitch. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so uh, we, okay, so we've talked a little, do we have any other things um, about comparing well, this to the, well, yeah, we do have some other things. I want to, to let yeah, you drive big, like, something huge. Okay. Compare, compare something and contrast. Huge. In broad broad strokes, the TV series and this movie, what are the differences? We talked about well, some of the similarities. The huge thing is that it's a prequel. There really is no uncle in this movie, except, or at least those for those two guys, till the very end. We get their backstories, right? Mm -hmm. Who they were before they were recruited by uncle, okay? Which, as an uncle purist, I didn't mind. I'm sure there were many. I'm know there were i've seen some of them online who were just indignant about that but i was all right with that i went along for the ride with richie on that um i didn't mind it at all because the other thing about it too is it almost makes 
the sequel inevitable, right? I mean, right. Uh, it's not it's not ironclad, but at least it tells me if they're going to do a prequel in the backstory of these guys about how they and Uncle came to be, you would mm -hmm. think they'd have a sequel where they're full fledged Uncle agents. At right? least two had to have been in their minds. This had this definitely yeah. looks like a play for a uh, you know a franchise. Right. So I, w I did not mind the prequel aspect. I thought it was uh interesting directorial license, as they say, that Richie took. Um, they, uh, yeah, because they gave, uh, talked about, okay, who was Ilya in the KGB? Who was Napoleon in the CIA? And he also was an art thief. Um, and then they bring them together. These are uh, new backstories. They They're giving the characters new backstories that didn't exist. And also some personality right. traits that didn't exist in the series. Right. Can you talk about well, those? Yeah, especially the, the the temper aspect of anger management of Ilya. That was not the case in um, the TV series. He was just very mild-mannered. Man um, so that was something they wrote in. But again, I didn't mind that either. Um, the thing, again... <laughs> I was fine with the whole idea of a prequel. I, ju I just wish, again, that they made it earlier for Vaughn or McKellen to be in it. Uh, and I wish they kept the theme's music, which I loved. But other than that, I went along for the ride. What about this new backstory where Solo is not, he's not necessarily uh, working for the CIA of his own free will? Here. Yeah, they got him by the, you know what, they got him by the cojones. So they've given him um, a, a backstory of being a master thief. Right. Safe, which safe gets him into the party. Picking, which, right. he, which gets him into the party with, uh, what's her name, uh, Alexander? No. Yeah. Uh, Victoria. Uh, Victoria, yeah. yes. So it literally gets him into the party because he steals Waverly's invitation. He pickpockets it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And when he gets in there, he lets uh, Victoria see that he's stealing watches and jewelry. So she, he wants her to see that he's a thief, which allows him to pivot to the whole idea of art theft, which she is interested in. So I thought that was a unique way of not only literally getting into the party, but getting in with her. Right. So I like, I like both of these. I think that one thing it accomplishes by giving him the background of a of a of a thief and a little bit of a dicier relationship with the, with the CIA than maybe Ilya has with the KGB and and putting Ilya's anger issues in here it seems like they're kind of giving them also like more distinguishing their skill sets like i think i think they're setting Ilya up to be a little bit more of the muscle in this film and and uh solo being a little more of the sneaky finesse type guy which i like just i just want to hear from you from you our resident uh man from uncle super fan uh you know if you think if you think these are appropriate if if this is yeah none of it again none of it i was false to you no no i was okay with it you know all right. i'm all for directorial license and uh you know i uh i was willing to go along for the ride and i thought it was pretty good Okay, we talked about the music. It was uh, Jerry Goldsmith. I found the name. Yes, of the thank you. And uh, so, okay, what I want to say about that is sure. 
he gave the overall theme music in 1964, which is kind of like had a militaristic bent with drums and so on, um, which was good for that first year. But the second year they got, because they went to color, I thought this was interesting. The money they spent on color, they had to cut back on the orchestral arrangements. Like Goldsmith started out with like uh, 20 some people in the orchestra. And then throughout the series, he had at least 15. Okay. But from what I read is when they went to color, which was that much more expensive, they had to cut down on the musicianship, the number of musicians, which gave them like an average of eight people in the band. But that was serendipitous because <laughs> as the swing in 60s moved on, you only needed a small band like that to create the rock and roll jazzier style it would take, which would help usher in the swing in 60s as this show moved along. So it was really good. And that's the music I loved. It had the Hammond B3, which was so characteristic of almost every rock and roll group back then, especially with the British. Uh, think of uh, House of the Rising Sun, that great um, organ solo in that. But that shrill Hammond B3, also the bongos, uh, flutes, yeah, heavy yeah. bass, yeah, brass. Uh, bongos and, and flutes, that, I love them. And that was uh, Lilo Schifrin and Gerald Freed. And I guess Jerry Goldsmith was a bit miffed by that. But it really worked, like I say, as the swing in 60s moved on into a more rock and roll era and a more rock and roll feel. Third series, the campy one, which was probably the one where they lost the audience, although I thought it the best music. That um, ballsy sax, like, I don't know if you know about Bobby Keys, but he was the Stones' great sax player. He, get, he uh, had that nasty solo in Brown Sugar but he played with them for years and he played with virtually everybody, Bobby Keys. Very similar sax, especially in the uh, theme song in the third series, that real nasty alto sax. Um, so yeah, I love the music. I uh, have the soundtracks, I play it all the time. And uh, yeah. So, so given, I mean, obviously given that you would have liked to have seen, you know, especially the theme song make an appearance in this film. And I think, I think, I think you're right. It would have been extremely appropriate to put in the end credits. Cause that's when we're really, yeah. we're really setting up like, this is the yeah. man from uncle. Um, yeah. That would yeah, have been cool. Yeah. I think that would have been really cool. But uh, overall, like how would you, how would you rate the, the music that we did get in this film? Good. Good. I thought it was authentic sixties kind of music along with the fashion. So they did their homework on that. Uh -huh. Um, when Gabby was dancing in the background in their hotel suite um, to that uh, rhythm of blues style music, I thought that was great. And uh, throughout there were 60s style uh, flute and bongos and a little bit of organ. So you can tell they tried and uh, yeah. So, so they got the 60s um, fashion and music down quite well. You could tell they did their homework on that, especially right, with right. Gab Gabby's attire and Victoria's. Speaking of fashion, I'm just going to say this is a this is a film about earrings. This is a film about some big, big, very colorful '60s earrings. Poopy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, I think uh, 
I think, oh, except for our, uh, our, our regular little quick check to see whether or not there's a park bench in this film. If you're new to the show, we always look for a park bench because that's the classic place where spies like to meet and have secret conversations. Did we get a park bench scene in this film, Fred? Um, I think you suggested the closest we came to a car park bench was that walk in the park. Didn't you suggest we that? Did, we did have a walk in the park. We'll give him partial credit for that. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So let's let's run down and talk about this this background story. As in a lot of spy movies, uh, some things have happened before. You know, the audience has been let in. You know, and the and the film actually starts. Uh, in this case, the plot here revolves around uh, Alexander and Elizabeth Vincy Daguerre. Uh, planning on trying to deliver a nuclear bomb to the Nazis. Uh, details of these Cold War Nazis, and I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think. I don't think the Nazis were as active or as uh, uh, threatening in real life as they're portrayed in this film. Uh, details of the Nazis are almost completely absent from the film, but they do have a submarine at one point, which suggests they have some kind of naval base hidden somewhere in the world. Uh, pretty sure that's not uh, <laughs> the case in reality. So we are... No, in, they, in, they were on the run by then, running yeah, to South America. and hiding, Yeah, hiding in Brazil. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to, you know, in, in classic 60s style, we're going to indulge in a little bit of fantasy in this movie. Uh, you know, it's it's not terribly realistic. It's more of an action, uh, a jazzy action uh, set piece uh, delivery vehicle. Um, two years prior to the events of this film, the Vincent de Guerres have kidnapped Udo Teller. That's a nuclear scientist who worked for Hitler's regime under duress. He wasn't uh, he wasn't a fan of the Nazis, but they forced him to work uh, for Hitler. And uh, after World War II, he went to work for the United States. Uh, we do I wonder that. if that's a reference to uh, the teller who helped us invent the atom bombs. Of course. It's, it's, almost, it's a little bit too on the nose for me. Yeah. Um, but we yeah. do know that that, in fact, did happen, that a lot of uh, German scientists did come over here and help us work on our uh, nuclear we, uh, yeah, program. Yeah, we, rec we recruited them. Uh, in fact... We liberated some of them who should have been, you know, sentenced at the Nuremberg trials. And one of the most famous uh, that I had written down here was a man by the name of Reinhard Galen. He founded East Germany's modern intelligence service with hundreds of former Nazis like him. So um, once we realized that the new enemy was going to be the Russians, uh, we thought, who better than to help us with uh, anti-communism, but fascists? Okay, Germany. so you said East Germany a second ago. Did you mean to say West Germany? Yes. Okay. Yes, I did. Interesting. Um, never heard of him. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, what I want to so say that, here... That was, yeah, go ahead. No, please. Good. No, go ahead. No, that's all. All right. What I want to say here is that... Uh, uh, the bomb itself is nearly complete. 
that he's working on for the Vincent Garris. Um, if I were to guess, they don't really have dates in the film, but uh, I would guess it's about two weeks away from being complete. And that's kind of important to me because I think it's a huge coincidence of timing that fails close inspection that both the CIA and KGB have simultaneously, also a big coincidence, without knowing that the bomb is nearly complete, at least as far as we are told, that they both come up with the idea suddenly that the best way to find Teller is to locate his brother-in-law, Uncle Rudy. And uh, yeah, not clear that why uh, uh, they come up with this idea at this point in time. Um, speculation. It is true that Uncle Rudy, unlike his brother-in-law, Teller, is a legit Nazi. Uh, he's died in the wool, true believer. Um, the CIA doesn't know what happened to Teller, though, only that he disappeared. He could have fled on his own. That maybe doesn't make too much sense because supposedly he had a very cushy life in the U.S. At least uh, that's what uh, Solo represents uh, the situation as to his daughter, Gabby. The most likely worry that they should have had was that the KGB had gotten a hold of him somehow. Um, and it's later made clear in the film that the USA considers Teller's research in particular key to winning the arms race against the Russians. So it was weird to me that they they just jumped right right across the obvious uh, guess that the Russians got a hold of him to, hey, maybe there's some Nazis still operating in a secret base somewhere in the world. Um, but for this film to make for this film to make sense, we have to believe that the CIA ruled that out and that they think that he's in the hands of this weird Nazi group, which is fine. I just wish it had been addressed somehow. They also, there's also the assumption that Uncle Rudy would be involved somehow. Again, just not addressed. Uh, I could imagine they were trying Uncle Rudy as just some kind of long shot, but I think I think the whole uncle I could be wrong, but that whole Uncle Rudy is sort of an in joke about Uncle. <laughs> you know how we're going to find out later that Uncle is going to be Uncle and. Uncle Rudy is sort of an in-joke about or in foreshadowing of what's later to be. Could be wrong, but that was just my thought. Maybe we just want to get the word uncle in the script somewhere yeah. before the final, yeah, 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 the, yeah. basically the final yeah, yeah. line of yeah. the movie. <laughs> or just, just an in-joke, you know, kind of a thing. Um, so that's the assumption we are asked to make about the CIA. We're asked to make the same assumption about the KGB, and we're asked to believe that this incredibly coincidental timetable uh makes sense and it gets a little worse even there further straining credibility if gabby had spent the last eight were given to believe she spent the last 18 years on the east side of the wall uh the russians would have had an easier time locating her than the americans right right what we see instead is that uh, the Russians can't apparently can't find Gabby on their own, but somehow they've figured out that Napoleon Solo, working for the CIA, is infiltrating East Berlin, and their best way that they can figure out of getting Gabby is just to follow Solo. 
doesn't make sense to me. They if they knew she was in East Berlin, like they would have had the advantage. They they have the home court advantage there. Yep. Yep. So uh, I'm not making huge complaints about my enjoyment of the film here. It's just that's <laughs> what that's what we do on this yep. show. So we pick it apart. Yep. Um, yep. Now then we have our our action scenes. Uh, Solo trying to extract Gabby. Ilya trying to stop them, failing. Solo does get away with Gabby. Uh, but then we're going to find out that the CIA and KGB have decided that Ilya and Napoleon Solo should work together. I guess both sides know that the Nazis have Teller, that they're getting close to the bomb. And uh, they just think, like, we have no choice but to work together. Very, very hand-wavy to me. Like, as far yeah. as realism but you goes, know what I said. <laughs> yeah. But that's the whole, but think about this as per, and this is what I said in my notes. And yet as preposterous as that might seem, somehow the whole cold war audience in the sixties bought a Russian and Americans working together in an international organization mm-hmm. of law and enforcement at the height of the cold war, which was the whole premise of uncle. Right. So, right? so actually you're questioning the whole premise of uncle and Yes, on one level, it does sound preposterous, but I'm reminding you that it worked on a Cold War audience back in the 60s, that a Russian would be working with Western agents in this international organization. There you go. Oh, yeah. Uh, it does, It does. of course, give me, uh, the, in my opinion, the funniest scene in the film. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and that's the one where right after a briefing uh solo and Ilya on their new collaboration the two spy masters say uh we'll we'll leave you two alone to get acquainted and they get up and this is in a crowded restaurant and every single other person in the restaurant gets up and leaves as well suggesting that the entire every everyone there is a spy uh that's that's good spy comedy in my opinion um if it wasn't for the whole timing part of it that I've already complained about, though, I'll say that the idea of getting to tell her through Rudy, through Gabby, under the ruse that, you know, Teller's only daughter is about to get married. You know, you want to come out, you you want to, you know, you want to be there for your daughter's wedding. That I like. I'll give that plus five points. It's just if it wasn't for the timing. I like I like the idea. And it's a good way to get right. the three. And, and this and, and this is another facet of the TV series, the kind of posing and recruiting of an apparent innocent to pose and infiltrate along with them is the formula for virtually every uncle TV show. So that was characteristic of the TV show, too. Spot on. Spot on. Yeah. All right. Cool. So that's our setup. That's how we get that's how we get into how the audience gets delivered into the film. Um, Here, I thought we would just take each of the major characters in turn and talk about their individual uh, 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 deployment of tradecraft, uh, winners winners and losers. Uh, We have an intro sequence, of course, with uh, Napoleon Solo uh, starting crossing Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, we've, We've seen Checkpoint Charlie in more than a few films. Uh, by this point, I wonder if this one was filmed on location or if there's some checkpoint Charlie set that everyone uses. 
Well, the whole TV series was always was, was on Hollywood back sets, even though it always said somewhere in Switzerland, right? Or somewhere uh, in Rome, oh, yeah, yeah. right? Sure. Yeah. And they'd have these file tapes that you could see were file tapes where they'd show, say, the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something to let you know that you were in France or some, you know, but it was, but it was all shot in the back lot for the TV series and the movie. I don't know. Right. Uh, right off the bat, we see Napoleon Solo using reflections to notice that uh, he's being observed and followed. This is, of course, Tradecraft 101 uh, in almost every realistic, what I would consider realistic spy movie I've ever seen. This is like the, the main thing they teach you. This is like the first thing they teach you is how to, how to do this kind of thing. Um, so that lets us know that we're at least going to have some kind of uh, of tradecraft in the film. Uh, after he doesn't, we're going to find out soon that the border guard under the uh, excuse of checking Solo's luggage uh, placed a bug in there. Um, when Solo notices this in the garage, I notice he doesn't change the subject right away. And I think he says a little bit more than he needed to before he disables the bug by dropping it into the cup of coffee. Uh, so I didn't like that. Um, then there's the car chase with Ilya pursuing Solo and Gabby. Uh, both of them uh, being very uh, superhumanly observant of shadows and planning. Uh, both of them demonstrating like you know, again, like superhuman competence, uh, which just lets us know what kind of film uh, we're in for. Uh, Solo's leaders. Yeah. I liked Napoleon's in that car when he's saying very casually, does he have one hand on the steering wheel? That was good. Is, is he looking this way? And she's kind of looking out of the corner of her eye. I thought that was cool and suspenseful. When you hear something like a gunshot, <laughs> you know, do this, you know. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, at first, I'm going to just jumping off trade cuff for a real quick second. At first and around this time, I was feeling very off-put and annoyed by uh, Sol Henry Cavill's portrayal of, so of Solo as being like so incredibly unflappable and calm and matter of fact about everything. Uh, I did warm to the performance over the course of the film and on rewatch it, I really just kind of like it. Um, well, especially uh, <laughs> when he's having that, he's on the pier in the truck and he's casually having that yes. Italian picnic with the wine and the bread and the cheese. And here's another one of those foreground background is Italy is being chased in the water by a motorboat and he's just casually having this Italian picnic as that's going on in the background. That was hysterical. That was pretty damn funny. I thought. And and one of three foreground background humorous uh scenes. And it leads and it stays it stays funny all the way up to where he just drives the truck off the pier and just <laughs> sandwiches yeah. the yeah. boat uh yeah. with the truck yeah. and and to the point of like as the truck is sinking through the water and he's just sitting there in the cab watching uh, Ilya's body uh, descend Submerge. into the darkness yeah. uh, through the through the headlights. 
Um, yeah, overall, yeah. overall, I'm, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Uh, enjoyable film, I thought. Uh, I heard that it did not do well. That might be more to do with timing than yeah, based on actual released. merits of this yeah. film. From what I read, it unfortunately had a release during one of the Jurassic Park or superhero movies right in the middle in the summertime. And some of the reviewers, critics uh, that reviewed it said that was an unfortunate thing, that it wasn't that bad, but it didn't do well because of what it was released and what was it what it was up against sure big blockbusters you know i noticed i actually uh if i remember right it's released in august of this year something really interesting though i noticed is that they originally slated it for january january is the dumping ground usually of of films it's where you put films that you have realized you've made an awful mistake as a movie studio (laughs) And you, you still have to release the film because you're contractually obligated to, but you're hoping that no one will notice. But they did. Yeah, and it's a little late minute for Oscar. Oscar. It's a little late for Oscar notice too, isn't it? Yeah, January. of course. Of course. You're right after yeah. you're, so, you're right past the deadline. Right. Um, so that's so weird to me that, that something, something says to me, like someone at the studio did not have a lot of confidence in this film. But then all of a sudden, at the last minute, they suddenly got a surge of confidence, moved it from January to August, which also maybe because it was a last minute change, turned out to be ill-advised and Mm -hmm. that it suffered from just not being at the right time slot. Um, Back to Tradecraft in the film, uh, we're jumping ahead in time a little. I just want to follow Solo around for a bit. Uh, but there's a certain point where he discovers that uh, his room has been bugged uh, extensively. And he's got a little gadget that, that lets him pretty easily detect these bugs. If you've got a gadget like that, Fred, you should just check your room like as soon as you get there and periodically. Uh, in uh, From Russia with Love... I think that's the second Sean Connery movie. That's the very first thing that James Bond does when he checks into his hotel room. Is, is... I think they do in the TV series too. I think Vaughn and Ilya do that in the TV series as well. Okay. Check bugs. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about realism of spy gadgets. This film does have a few. Some of them I think are quite interesting. Uh, I actually did forget to check on the ac- the believability of this little device that he's got, but it, it looks plausible enough to me. Um, now, it turns out all these bugs are of Russian design, which, uh, I don't know, how do we feel about that? Uh, shouldn't the well, Russians shouldn't the Russians know well enough to know the CIA is going to know what kind of bugs they use? Wouldn't you try to, like... Well, but here's how I look at it. Again, being a historical <laughs> person... And a person of that age, the Sputnik race, okay? okay. They got into space first. And I think this, because they're going back and forth. Uh, this is Swiss made, not only the bugs, but there was the the lock picks, right? And there was that fence cutter thing. And they're going back. This one's Russian made. This one's Swiss made. This is in the West. I thought that mirrored the Sputnik space race when the Russians, now I was alive when the 
happened. When the Russians got into space, everybody over here was so upset about that. And then Ken Kennedy came out when he became president, threw down the gauntlet and said, oh, yeah, well, we're going to be the put the first man on the moon. Right. And so there was that scramble for NASA to do that. So I thought that going back and forth about the technology mirrored the Sputnik space race at the time. Right. And it's also, you're, you're, you're totally right. They do uh, dick measure their technology against each other. We kind of forgot to mention as well, this is also a departure from the TV series. This film's comedic engine pretty much is fueled by the constant dick measuring between Solo and Ilya, which I found vastly entertaining. Of course, this is also an invention of the film, something that we did not see in the TV series, in the TV series, they seem to be like true partners that, you know, knew and respected and appreciated and trusted each other implicitly. Well, of course, but think about it. Even if they were that way, by the time they were in uncle, the rapport would have been much better. Right. And they would have may have established a, a friendship more akin to what we saw in the TV series and not hated each other like, they was they they were in the prequel right but i think i think once you set up that kind of whoa sorry microphone once you set that up me. that oh i literally uh banged my oh okay uh, microphone. well we did it at the same time <laughs> okay okay um you know the the film runs so much on that fuel mixture that i think they would have had to like even if they continued the films they would have had to kind of keep keep that rolling uh, back to the yep. bugs, though, what he does once he finds these bugs, he just immediately marches over to Ilya and, uh, you know, kind of fuck use him about like, how, how did you, how stupid did you think I was that I wouldn't like find all these bugs in my room? Uh, Ilya counters by, you know, handing him a bunch of the CIA's bugs from, from his room and uh, just tradecraft wise, this is something I always like to point out. Uh, when it when it comes up, like when you find out when you find out that you're bugged, your first action is not to just go over and tell the enemy that you know that they're bugging them. What you can do is turn that into an opportunity. You can take that bugged area and now you have a source, a place where you know that you can have conversation, misleading conversations. It's an opportunity to feed misinformation that uh, a true spy would not overlook. Yep. Yep. Solo at a party. Uh, so his supposedly the, they're going to split their duties, which is something, you know, you said you were annoyed, I guess, in the final film that they they were split off entirely. But from my understanding, from my memory of the episodes we saw of the TV series, like it wasn't uncommon for, for them to say, okay, Solo, you're going to do this part of the job. Yeah, Ilya, you're going to do this part of the job. That's they're, true. That's they're, true. They're doing that again in this film, which I think is cool. Yeah. Now, Solo's job, yeah. of course, Ilya's job, of course, is to manage the girl. Again, very classic man from Uncle TV series style. In this yeah. case, Solo's job is to try to get close to uh, the supervillainess. Victoria DeBicke. He's going to do this by um, uh, crashing a party or an event, a racing event slash party, let's call it. 
the way he does it is kind of interesting. Um, obviously, he doesn't have an invitation. Uh, he's not um, obviously going in and saying, announcing, like, hey, I'm the CIA. Uh, what he's going to do here, he's going to steal an invitation using his uh, apparently uh, really great pickpocketing skills from someone on the way in. Once he gets in, though, and he's asked to present his invitation, instead of presenting it, he pretends not to have one, picks a fight with the guy, causes a stir, and then when uh, Victoria comes to see what's going on with that, he says, oh, look, I actually do have an invitation. He then goes through a series of, um, uh, dem again, demonstrations of his uh, light fingers-ness uh, by stealing several pieces of jewelry, not only from uh, Victoria, but also from a friend of hers. He does this in a way that she doesn't notice the stuff he's stolen from her, but does notice the stuff that she he's stolen from her friend, so that when she challenges him on this, he can really say, like, ta-da, I'm so fucking good. Uh, do you need any, you know, and kind of hints, like, hey, if you need anything stolen, I'm your man. And I do know that you uh, are very rich and, uh, you know, uh, very interested in your art collection. And that some pieces that you might be desirous of that you can't get through normal channels. Possibly I might be your man. Which is also a Nazi thing. Yes. The Nazi stole many, many examples of uh, classic art thievery um, over the their reign. Now, ultimately, we're not really going to see how uh, Solo's whole plan of getting close to Victoria would have turned out because there's going to be a point in this film where that whole channel of investigation that he's doing is just going to get completely cut off. But I was, I was just iffy about it. Like, like needing this scene in the film, it it's some screen time with Cavill and Victoria, but all this elaborate stuff, like, I don't know exactly where it's supposed to be going, what he's really trying to accomplish. He's not, he's not, presenting himself as a trustworthy person i kind of question that i think you well he's a thief he's I a did. thief yeah. right he's a thief he's establishing his thievery credentials with her um it like i say it gets him in literally right with waverly's invitation and gets him in figuratively with her it gets him in with her in literally and in figuratively with her. So I thought it was well done and clever. Okay. I just wonder. There's if another show. There's yeah. another show that I don't know if you've ever heard of in the 60s. It was a favorite of mine. It was called It Takes a Thief by Robert Wagner was in it, who would end up being in heart to heart with Stephanie Powers. And the whole premise was he was a thief. He was a spy, but he was hired for his thievery um, talents. Have you ever heard of it? I have heard of it. Okay. It's, it, his name was Alexander Monday. In the beginning of the show, it says, his boss says, M like boss says, Al, I'm not hiring you to spy. I'm hiring you to steal. And it had some pretty cool music in it, in it too. But, um, and I couldn't help but think of that with Napoleon's thievery credentials as well. So, yeah, I thought it was clever and, and good. Come, um, 
it also let's see and then all right so i just mentioned that uh his his plan wherever this was going it's gonna get thrown off when waverly throws his wrench in the works right which right. we're gonna talk but about it gets later. him in but it gets him in with her which is the main thing sure but what i want to mention here is that um this is kind of like this is my biggest problem with james bond films so maybe you could call this homage maybe you could call it sloppy but like maybe my single biggest problem with james bond films is that he basically just kind of shows up and then waits for the enemy to do something stupid um as opposed to like having like seeming to have kind of a plan on his own especially um, especially when he identifies himself as bond james bond and he doesn't come in with an alias right, right so right. yeah he shows up and tells him who he is and then yeah wait <laughs> so so i will say this is better than a james bond film at least it's 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 a notch above you know he actually does seem to have like a plan he's got an alias for one thing yeah. right and he does have like a plan of representing and and trying to sneak in get in and demonstrate like that he's got some skills that might be of service to her um when the wrench does come and he gets uh basically uh outed to victoria as being a cia cia spy uh the way that she drugs him um and and captures him uh is also very very bond like um yeah um mm-hmm. just just throwing out that out there um bet it's in the same it's in the same lane as a james bond film i just think it's done with a little more thought um, and the other Bond thing about it is he has his way with her too. Yeah, that was kind right? of a that's that was kind of, of obligatory James Bond thing, right? Feels feels yeah, feels obligatory is a good word that I would use yeah. for that. Uh that's really everything I got on solo. Uh by the time we circle around to the end of the film, he's just gonna be uh doing action hero stuff. Uh so let's move on to Ilya in this film. Um, the first thing that I see where I feel like, uh, this, this raises my antenna in appreciation of, of tradecraft is when they're having now, again, it's a little bit of a dick measuring contest, but I think there's a little more going on with it when they're dressing Gabby, Gabby for the part that she's going to play of being Ilya's fiance. Um, they have quite different opinions on fashion. Now this might have just been, it's possible. That's all it was is Guy Ritchie just wanted to let them do their dick measuring contest, especially in front of her and get some good interaction between the three characters. And that might've been all there was to it. But what I like to think I see in there, is that Ilya is saying, no, you don't understand what the wife, what the fiance of a wealthy Russian architect would dress like. There's a certain kind of fashion style. And some things, you know, like in some, uh, in some cultures and cultures can be like, like microscopic. You can have, you can say there's such a thing as Russian culture, right? 
But Russian culture isn't just Russian culture. It's divided into a whole bunch of little tiny sectors of, of you know, there's, there's rich Russians, there's poor Russians, there's uh, Southern Russians, there's Northern Russians, there's Russians of certain ages, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what I like about this scene, or I like to think I see in this scene, is that Ilya has a very precise vision of how this woman would fit in, even to the point where Solo says that belt doesn't match that purse. And Ilya says it doesn't have to match. It just has to be accurate to what that kind of person would wear. I want to give it plus spy points and I'm gonna. Okay. But I'm gonna not only that, but I think there's more to it than that. Yes, that's part of it. But I think especially in hindsight, he's becoming more and more attached to her. And you see that as well. So he cares about her. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about the fashionista part. Of her. He's gradually becoming more attached to her um, and the whole marriage thing. And we find out in the end, he is kind of attached to her. So I think that's part of it as well. He cares about her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's at least a good uh, door to open and, and, for, and then let the movie start further exploring the possibility. Yeah of, of, of yep. an intimate relationship uh, between the two of them. Um, now they, you know, uh, once, once she's dolled up and got a fake engagement ring on her, uh, he's going to take her uh, around Rome. She says, what are we doing? She's, he says, well, we're, we're, we're doing what any architect would do when visiting Rome. We're going to see the sites. We're going to see the architectural sites plus five points for him on that. Um, when she queries him about the steps in the plaza in Rome, uh, I'm not 100% sure about this. Would like to hear your thoughts. I feel like he's making that story up. Especially because when she pokes some holes in it, you know, it turns out a super, super observant person that had, for instance, like actually counted the number of steps uh, can poke some holes in his story. I like to think that I mean, the story he tells does seem kind of plausible and a bit detailed. Uh, and so hats off to him for being able to bullshit on the spot about something he doesn't know about, but tell a story in a lot of detail that sounds plausible. So maybe plus five points for that. But it really makes me wonder that his cover story of being an architect wouldn't hold up for a minute. If, you know, if he goes to like, if, you know, if he ends up going to uh, one of these wealthy parties uh, with his new in-laws, uh, the first thing they're going to do, I think, even even not being spies, even if they're not spies, the first thing they're going to do is say like, oh, you're an architect here. Let's introduce you to, uh, you know, Francois our architect friend, you guys. And then the first thing they're going to do is start talking about architecture. And the first thing Francois is going to figure out is this guy doesn't fucking know, you know, an arch uh, from, from a something other, some other architectural term. Hmm. Um, the opposition is looking at Ilya and we know, and we should know, the opposition's looking at Ilya with, with some suspicion. This is done off, sort of off screen, but the idea is that they're going to test him to see if he what is what he says he is, not by asking him about architecture, uh, but by uh, staging a mugging. 
against him. Basically, what they want to do is they want to figure out, like, how does this guy react in a fight or flight situation? Does he does he pussy out like a rich Russian high heeled, well heeled architect? Or does he fight back using KGB CQC master ninja abilities? Um, on left to his own devices, it seems we're led to believe Ilya would probably have kicked those guys' asses up and down the street. Which is why Solo feels it's necessary to intercept Ilya, let him know that this mugging is coming, and tell him, like, hey, you gotta take a beating here. And Ilya resists that. Your thoughts? Or do you want to let me just um, run up on it? <laughs> no, here's what I thought. Okay. Remember when he said there's a Russian, when he got frustrated with the Napoleon for saying, he goes, that's not the Russian way, okay? The Russian way militarily became very predictable, okay? Not only for our armed forces, especially pilots and dogfights, but the Israelis too. The Israelis and the Americans prided themselves on being flexible, at least everything I've read. And there's been some movies along those lines about challenges and, and especially in the air and dogfighting. And it came to be known that the Russians and their clients, the Syrians, okay, Chinese, were very predictable in what they would do, right? And so easier to attack and counterattack. And I thought of this when he said, that's not the Russian way. In other words, just to fight. And whether I blew my cover or not, that's me. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's what I thought of. Okay. The Russians were very predictable in their in their fighting and in their counter uh, attacks and so on. I just wonder sometimes, like, uh, you know, because it's such a typical human tendency to uh, um, uh, brutify the enemy, to dehumanize the enemy, oh, the yeah. opposition is that, you know, this, I feel like this trope in cinema of Russians as being like more prone to violence, more prone to yeah. uh, try to use brute force to solve a problem than finesse. Mm -hmm. uh, if I, I really have to wonder if that's just like, a, I, yeah, know. I wasn't suggesting that. I was, oh, I was oh, suggesting. Yeah, no, 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 I'm just adding, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry. That's not, I didn't mean to say no. that. Um, but yeah. you know, just, just alongside that in, in this situation, this idea that Ilya, you know, Ilya is the one with anger issues. Ilya is the one oh, that yeah, yeah. to punch problems yeah, right that, in the face. Like, sure. uh, anytime, yeah, that could be. anytime I see that, I, I, I always wonder like, you know, is this, cause it, it does seem to be endemic to cinema, you know, yeah. like the uh, Russian mafia and all the bad guys who are Russian in movies nowadays, yeah. Right. The guy that Rocky fights in, what is it, Rocky oh, Five yeah. or something? Yeah. Um, yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. The the movie, I think it was Red Heat with Schwarzenegger and, and oh, James yeah. Belushi. And uh, there's always a Russian mafia badass in so many movies nowadays, you know? The Russian mob, they're always, yeah. So they're kind right. of a stock. Or in video games. In video games, the Russian... The Russian character is always going to be like a big, meaty powerhouse, even if it's a yeah. female. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Uh, he does. Uh, let's see. 
No, okay. So I mentioned uh, Solo comes and intercept, intercepts Ilya to let him know that this mugging is going to happen. Um, and and the staged mugging on that enemy's part, I think that's good tradecraft on their part. This, this is great. You know, attack the guy, see what happens. Um, see, see how he fights. That could tell you whether or not this is a legit guy or an agent. Um, it's really incomprehensible that they were that the guys were just waiting at the hotel and that Solo just happens to see him. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna hand wave that away, real quick. When Solo shows up to warn Ilya, uh, I think he does a better job of pretending to have a conversation of having a conversation while pretending not to have a conversation. You know, like he's he's. It just, he could be just sitting on his scooter. They're just happened to be looking at the same thing, talking out of the sides of their mouths at each other, just like you do at a fucking park bench. Um, I was just going to say, there's your park bench. Yeah. But ultimately, like as the conversation goes through, I think they all fuck it up. Like anybody observing, if you watch their body language and the way they start looking at each other and speaking directly to each other, they're, they're not practicing good tradecraft here. If someone was well, being Iliad observed, does get a punch off too. If I was observing, if I was observing their conversation though from a distance, I would be able to tell they were in cahoots with each other. Um, yep. uh, Iliad does throat punch the guy, which I did not like. Like I think he blew his cover right there. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, um, I want to mention. Here too, I think it's in the first. I think it's something we covered on the podcast. I don't remember a hundred percent, but I'm I'm ninety five percent. There's a scene in the first season of the French spy series Le Bureau where our agent goes to a guy and gets, or we get a flashback of where he's been specifically trained on how to get his ass kicked. Like the guy teaches him all the techniques of how to get hit but not get hurt you know what i mean how to like protect his his vitals and how to how to lose a fight without how to lose a fight convincingly but not actually sustain any lasting injuries and that's what Ilya would have done uh in a more realistic film mm-hmm. um yeah these muggers uh walk away not only with uh, some cash and an engagement ring, but they also peel Ilya's beloved watch off of his person. Let's flag Ilya for poor tradecraft for uh, wearing this highly personal, highly identifiable item on his person uh, while undercover. This is this is a big no-no when you're undercover. Don't keep don't keep this don't keep your personal shit around you. If you're a smoker in real life, then when you're undercover, you don't smoke or you smoke a different brand or you smoke at different times a day than your usual person. You got to change everything about yourself. And that includes not wearing a watch, (laughs) the same watch. Just like our last one, uh, the guy was supposed to be uh, a non-smoker and they catch him smoking. Deplorable, yeah, yeah. was it? Yeah, uh, in Dishonored. Yeah. Dishonored, yeah. Right, which I just finished compiling, and I'm going to be uploading uh, possibly tonight. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah. All right. Oh, good. 
we get to do some of Ilya's spy gadgets here. Um, Ilya uses, uh, while, while they're all at the uh, party slash race event uh, thereafter, Ilya's going to demonstrate that he has, oh, so he's taken a lot of photos during the event. I want to mention this is good tradecraft. Any situation where, you know, it's logical that someone would be taking a lot of pictures, take that opportunity and take a lot of pictures, right? You know, you don't even need a secret spy camera. You can just be carrying this big fucking thing around. And he does take a lot of pictures. And it's later revealed that he's using a special photographic film that can uh, uh, detect traces of radiation. Fred, I don't know if you've read my notes. Do you want to take a guess real quick on whether or not you think this is real or not real? No, go ahead. All right. It is real. It is real. In fact, you don't need, you don't even need special photographic film. The fact is uh, radiation uh, of this type would interfere with and, and cause blotches on any kind of photographic film. That's just true. Like radiation, it's just a different kind of light. You know, uh, film is sensitive to light or, you know, or I'm sorry, light is just another form of radiation in a way. So this is totally true, except you wouldn't need special film and the blotches wouldn't show up uh, like uh, kind of like red and orange blotches. They would show up as dark. Uh, radiation causes uh, film to turn dark. And that is why, uh, you know, you ever see a film where uh, they're working in a nuclear reactor or something and they have these little badges or something that they can look at yeah. and see if their radiation exposure has gone beyond like tolerable le uh, levels. You know what the technology that that badge is using? Photographic wow. film. Photographic film okay. is, is what that badge is, is layered on. And that's what it's reacting to. And that's how it's telling you that the radiation is there. Um, okay. so that one was kind of cool. I thought to look into, um, mm -hmm. and then there's, uh, the fence cutter, Ilya's little CO2 laser, uh, <clears throat> CO2 lasers were invented in 1963. So they do exist at the time of this film. Um, but two problems with it. Uh, they're nowhere near that tiny. <laughs> nowhere near like we're talking about a big industrial <laughs> machine um mm -hmm. not even like the size of a printer or a pc but a big block of machinery also um what they do like the importance or the use of a co2 laser is that it's incredibly precise what you can do with a co2 laser that you couldn't do before they were invented is cut uh, metal in in extremely intricate patterns, for instance, that like you might need to do to uh, to make circuit boards or something. Mm -hmm. So it's so what 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 Solo is saying is like, hey, my uh, clippers are so badass because they've been sharpened with a CO two laser, and Ilya is saying my CO two laser is even better than your clippers because it just fucking cuts right through metal like butter that's just not what co2 lasers do that's not their function mm -hmm. um 
All in all, though, I think the the film is is pretty conservative in its deployment of spy gadgets. None of them jumped up at me like really weird, like you would get in a Roger Moore Bond film or something. Well, the TV series was known for their uh, communicators. Uh, the first year they were. Did they the have watches? A, what did they have? No, no. The first year they were the um, size of a cigarette lighter, but then after years after. They were the size of, they were look like a, a long tire gauge. And okay. they, the cliche was open channel D overseas relay. Well, when they were going to, when they were in a foreign country, they'd say open channel D overseas relay. But when they were talking to each other, it was just Ilya, Napoleon. But channel D got them back to Waverly. And uh, so that was a pretty cool gadget. And then there's the, the uncle gun that we'll talk about later that was a hot toy at the time and really really cool kind of gun that does appear in the movie toward the end Ooh, yeah, yeah hey uh do you like star trek fred mm, i wasn't a fan i was as i said in the notes i was an uncle nerd when everybody else was a star trek nerd okay so maybe this won't maybe this won't land with you i am a star trek fan I've watched almost all the series, etc. Something that mm-hmm. uh, ever since I noticed it, it bugs me every time. And once once you think about it, it 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 will constantly bug you anytime you watch a Star Trek show. Is they tap the badge, and and they say who they want to talk to, and then they have a conversation right through the communicator, mm-hmm. but they never mm-hmm. turn it off. You know, <laughs> like. The, there's never like the end of the then they go on and they start having other conversations with other people about stuff and and you're like thinking about like the person on the other end they're like uh are we uh done with this call or not did you notice that did you notice that yourself or did you read about it so no i noticed that myself yeah it's it's just one of See, my in uncle they do in uncle they do there's a they do turn it off they they collapse the tire gauge thing and they close up the cigarette lighter thing like you would a cigarette lighter so yeah you see there's a definite on and off, all through yeah. all through the shows even the newer ones next generation and deep space nine and and uh and voyager they're constantly they're never turning they turn they show them turning the call on they never show them hanging up huh. um. hmm. gaby and waverly so we already spoiled it. Gaby's been working for Waverly this whole time. In fact, they've recruited Hence the girl from Uncle. Right. Yep. Right. The tie-in. Very nice tie-in. I love the fact you, you noticed that. Um, I'm just going to mention again, and he doesn't say who he works for in the film. It's just the dossier at the end says MI5 F branch. MI5 is uh, internal security within the like board. Like our FBI. Within exactly, that's how you always remember. MI five with the F sound is the FBI. MI six with the S sound is the CIA. Particularly, uh, uh, MI five F branch is for a uh, counter counter subversive movements. I think maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't want to go back and look at my notes. Um, but something that this is not, this is not that kind of operation. So that's just maybe a mistake of the movie of like what they put on the dossier. Point is, this would more logically be an MI6 operation. 
His ploy was right, to right. now he he expected. Why did he recruit Gaby? He expected the Nazis to come looking for her, which didn't happen. Uh, what instead happened is the CIA and KGB came looking for her at the same time. Weirdly enough, um, I don't know enough about what MI5 knows about the timeline of how close Teller is to building the bomb to judge how smart this is that he was just waiting, sitting there waiting. It seems like his plan wouldn't have worked because the Nazis never did show any interest in going and trying to grab Gaby. Um, Waverly makes the James Bond mistake. I don't know if you noticed this, but he checks into the same hotel as Solo, Ilya, and Gaby, and he uses his own name. He checks in as Waverly. Mm -hmm. Should use a cover name, sir. He also is using his... Uh, real name Waverly uh, when he interacts with the villains. So uh, minus five points for you, Mr. Waverly. I do understand that it makes sense that like we're what they're doing us as the audience. If we know the TV show, we're saying like, Hey, Waverly, wait a second. What's going on here? So it has to be that way. Yeah. But they could have waited a little longer at the very, very end to spring that on us too, that he's Waverly rather than announce it. Right. Let's say, let's say I'm going to coin a new, I'm going to coin a new phrase that I'll use for these situations. It doesn't make us, it doesn't make sense for a good reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gaby now, of course, now there's also maybe the weird flaw, like, okay, you could recruit Gaby directly or you could just put a watcher on her and see what happens. Um, obviously, you made the decision to, to bring her in to let her know what's going on. But uh, apparently, she's not very highly trained in tradecraft. Uh, her getting drunk and trying to seduce Ilya, a great time to roll out my new phrase, doesn't make sense for a good reason. Um, and yet, and yet... Maybe she's using good tradecraft by playing up the innocent that she's supposed to be. I give you that. I give you that. It is convincing. Maybe she's not as drunk as she looks like she is. <laughs> um, and then we get up to her. Uh, uh, I'm going to put air quotes on this. If you're listening to the audio version, you can't see this, but the video uh, version using my fingers her betrayal of solo and Ilya is really quite interesting now this is something she's doing under waverly's instructions um as soon as she manages to uh get in and get an audience with the villa via via de guerra's and they're saying like, hey, how do we know we can trust you? She says, you can't. Because I'm a spy. And the, or not not that I'm a spy, but that the, the guys that are handling me, they're spies. She sells Solo out and sells Ilya out immediately. Just with no hesitation. First opportunity. We don't say. know. We don't know if she's talking to Waverly in that hotel room when she talks about room 304. All we know is she's in cahoots with someone else besides 
Solo and Ilya. But I mean, we later find out he was on the other end of that line. Right. 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 He said, you right. know what, you know what to do. So he's prepped. But it for makes this. the audience think, but it also makes the audience think there's something more sinister going on. Right. Because we don't you know, know who it is she's talking. Well, here it definitely right. it definitely seems extremely sinister. I mean, she just sold out right. our, our heroes. What is going on? Right. At this point, of course, we at the audience, let's remember, we don't yet know that she's working with Waverly. We just know, we just, like you said, had that one hint that she's talking to someone um, yeah. else. Now, when she does this, what's clever about this is that she, Waverly told her that she would know, they would know that Ilya had bugged her, that there's a bug in her engagement ring and that he would be close enough to be able to hear her say this. So she's not only, she's not just selling him out. She's doing it in a way where Ilya will know that he's been sold out. And their whole master plan idea was that that would definitely, it does two things. First of all, it actually confirms to Ilya that her father, Teller, who's the real target of the whole movie's operation, is actually there. It also gives him warning time enough. They believe, they assume that would give him enough time to escape, which he does. What it doesn't do is it doesn't necessarily help Napoleon Solo. So it looks like they might have, Waverly might have considered Solo as being completely disposable because what you couldn't have planned on was that Ilya would go then go and rescue Solo from Victoria. But he does. And that's fine. Let alone from Uncle Nazi. Right. 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 Yes. Um, oh, what did I say here? Ilya's handler. Oh, right. So, but, okay. What is weird, a little weird here, though, is like, once Ilya, okay, so once Ilya and Solo, once Ilya has rescued Solo, and they're like, okay, we got to get out of here. We've been made. Um, Ilya makes a call to his KGB guys presumably they give him instructions on where to go and where do they end up? They end up in the hands of Waverly. It's kind of weird. I don't understand why, you know, I, I feel like the KGB might've done something else here. I don't want to get too much into the detail on that. Uh, but at this point, it does look like the C both the CIA and KGB have decided that Waverly should be in charge of everything. Do you see why? I would he tells them that. Yeah, and when they get on that plane, especially, he tells them that you're now under uh -huh. my authority. Yeah. Which I didn't get at first with regard to the Uncle Gun thing later, which I thought was a mistake in the movie when I originally saw it, but then I thought about it, and it made sense for them to have those guns. You would see why I kind of raised my eyebrows a little on the fact that the KGB and, and CIA are both like, okay, yeah, MI6, you handle it um mm -hmm. oh yeah it yep. suggests okay right i wrote here in my notes it suggests my big problem here it suggests that either the cia and kgb have been working with british intelligence all along which i find implausible and opens up a bunch of stupid questions or suddenly british intelligence has offered help that the cia and kgb can't turn down i could believe it i just I just 
wish in a better film or a more accurate film yeah. than it was. Well, um, or the long shot being, and I think I said this somewhere, is that um, maybe politics aside, when there's a nuclear launch threat um, possible, maybe that's why they could be so flexible. That's the only thing I can think of, you know? Right. Well, that's why that's why I think the film does have to invoke or chooses to invoke the Nazis, you know, which we know at this point yeah. would have been a fictional threat, but it's a threat that would unite. If it wasn't know. the Nazis, it'd be Thrush or Spectre or some other evil organization. Right. right? But here they make that decision of like, okay, well, right. who's who's a big baddie enough? Like who do who does the CIA and KGB both hate enough? to force them to work together. It makes sense. Nazis, nobody likes Nazis. <laughs> right. Well, so we thought uh, up until a few years ago, but anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> last, last, at least for me, um, I had some tradecraft notes on uh, the villains, specifically, uh, mostly Victoria, a little bit of Rudy. Um, when Solo and Ilya raid the facility, oh, I wanted to mention this too. Like, I really was not clear on like how, like the Vincent de Garas have like a huge amount of holdings, warehouses, uh, shipping yards, etc. It wasn't clear to me how they isolated this place as a place to look for the bomb uh, in the safe. Um, when they get into the safe, the bomb is gone. Why? Why did uh, it's never it's never told to us why the villains like were tipped off or had uh, any reason to suspect that they needed to move the bomb? They also stupidly left a, a piece of centrifuge there, which further confirms that the bomb was moved. The fact the centrifuge piece is left there could only suggest to me that they were in great haste to move it. But again, I would ask why, um, knowing that knowing cause the alarm does go off. Uh, so they know that someone made a play on the facility. Um, here's again, like, I mean, Victoria's first thought is, uh, to, to drive to Rome and check to see if it was solo. I mean, we know it was solo. But yeah, and they make a big deal about them getting back in uh -huh. the hotel on time, you know, for her to confirm it. It's a fun, it's a fun scene, but this goes back to maybe my, my concerns about his cover story being of a master thief, because, you know, as soon as so, someone tries to steal someone quote, tries to steal something from her, who's she going to think of first? It's him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't right. know why she felt like it was necessary for her to personally drive all the way to Rome to check in on them. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think they had telephones in 1964. I'm assuming. 1963. <laughs> um, but they get back in time. Everything looks in order. They fuck for no reasons. Um, and, uh, 
it's uh, it's the next day when Solo has his meeting with Victoria that she gets the call um, from Uncle Rudy. This is the at the point where Gaby has given Ilya and Solo up, and um, she has spiked all. She says, "You know, uh, help yourself to a drink." He makes himself a drink. It is drugged, of course. He says, "How do you know which?" which one I would drink. She says, I expect all the drinks. I leave nothing to chance. Um, I actually think, I'm not sure. Right now I'm thinking that she must have, would have had to have spiked all the drinks before he even showed up. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Um, but I'll give her points for spiking all the drinks. Um, it was smart of Teller to have a backup disc. Remember, it's not just the bomb, it's his research that's key here. Um, I think it's too smart of Victoria to know that he does. I think it is very dumb of Victoria to put a bullet in Teller's brain without actually knowing that the bomb will work. He says that it's yeah. done. Right? Yeah. In contrast to that, she keeps Gaby alive and she yeah. doesn't have any reason for that. So she kills Teller who she's got every reason to keep alive, keeps Gaby alive who she's got no reason to do so. And when they, um, I guess they're under attack or something. They need, they realize they need to boogie that the British Navy is on top of them and their base. Uh, her husband, Alexander, takes Gaby with him. No reason. No. No conceivable reason. Um, yep. Which, I mean, uh, you know, makes no sense for a reason. The reason is to give uh, us an exciting action scene and for her life to be the stakes of that in the story. Um I'll give them credit. I'll give the Via de Guerra's uh, credit for making a very good attempt, a decoy escape attempt with a decoy warhead. Mm-hmm. And that leaves them, that leaves Team Blue, meaning the good guys, uh, wondering, well, then where is the real warhead? Um Solo makes a deduction which looks great on film. He's seen two different pictures in the past. In one of them, he could see the first part of the boat's name. In the other photograph, he could see the last part of the boat's name. He puts that together, looks through the register. And this boat, of course, this is the boat that um, was the... It's important. It is an important boat to the Via de Guerra's. Alexander's father made his fortune, uh, you know, stealing, getting art antiquities out uh, at the end of of World War II. And this is the boat he used. So this boat does have a special meaning to the Via de Guerra's. Um, In reality, though, there's no reason that they would choose that boat to uh, try to sneak the nuclear warhead out with. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. 
All right. The whole thing about the guns, and it's in the storming of the island, which I thought was kind of a cliche James Bond thing, you know, the, you know, uh, most James Bond movies and uncle movies were storming the island fortress where the bad guys are holed up with their doomsday weapon. It's cliche, fun. but to be expected. Right. Yeah. So with that, I noticed, and only an uncle nerd like me would notice this, is that they had the uncle gun, which at first I thought cool because it was a pistol that was converted to a rifle with a silencer and a shoulder stock. Really cool. And it was a toy at the time in the 60s. Wow. So I thought, wow. And it's and the scene is so fast. Did you, you barely have, did you have yeah. one? I don't I don't think I had one. I longed for one, but I remember them being advertised and seeing them in the stores. And so it and they did. I think they took a Walther P whatever and or no, maybe it was a Luger because that's right. The first year the shows again going with their um Cold War setting they had lugers okay the second year they had these i want to say it was a waltz or something with a silencer and you could hear the silencer for a first year a lot of them were dart darts they used and then they went to a silencer but anyway the uncle gun they converted to a rifle was that pistol with a shoulder stock and sight an elongated barrel which was really cool and actually they did make an actual gun because i've read some things about it they had that in that storming of the island and you really can't it's happening so fast and even me when i'm looking at it it's hard to see but it's there they have it both of them do so I went from thinking, oh, this oh, is, really is cool. this the part? Is this the part where Guy Ritchie is doing all his split screen stuff, and and where we see the I'm whole not... raid on the island through a bunch of yeah, like yeah. flashes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But if you look carefully, you can see that it's that Uncle Gun that I described. So I went though from being thinking that was cool to to thinking, wait a minute, this isn't the Man from Uncle yet. This is a prequel. But then on viewing it the second time, I'm thinking, wait, although, is it? They're now under Mr. Waverly's authority. He briefs them in the airplane that both of your superiors have now given you over to me. So, in fact, they're uncle agents. So, in in a way, they could have been armed with that uncle gun um, that I came to that realization, which is kind of strange. Because at first I thought, oh, how could they, this is a faux pas. They want to have their uncle cake and eat it when they're not really uncle yet. Well, maybe they are uncle when they're under his authority and he could have armed them with that uncle gun. So. All right. So what I want you to do now is tie that little detail into letting, letting me and the audience know scale of one to five. How much did you like this film, Fred? Personally. Hmm. Uh, I'd say four. Yeah. It was fun. What's... And I bought I bought the prequel thing, you know, which I'm kind of proud of myself as an uncle nerd that I would be that open-minded and not say, oh, you know, how could they do this? Blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. I. What's missing? I, uh, I what's... Wrote with 
What what are the ingredients that are missing from a five? What does a five Man from Uncle movie look like to you? Hmm. Well, I I told you before I wanted the theme music in there, uh-huh. and yeah, I wish I there was more was of good. an attempt. I wish there was more of an attempt to uh, to bring uh, Vaughn and or McCallum into it in some way. I'm going to match you with a four, uh, uh, personally. Uh, my expectations were kind of low because I just, just sometimes you heard that the movie didn't do well at the box office and that colors your expectations. Uh, I'd say this movie totally exceeded my expectations. Um, it's not, it's not amazing, but it's kind of perfect in its way. All It's kind of almost perfect in its way uh, with the 60s vibe, with all, especially, I I appreciated this movie. Actually, a lot of times, the more I watch a movie, you know, in preparation and the more I study a movie, uh, my my appreciation for it goes down. In this case, it was the opposite. My appreciation, each time I watched it, I liked it a little bit more. Uh, I really, I really think Cavill and Hammer and uh, uh, Vikander uh, nail it with their energy. I think Debicki is a fucking great villainess. <laughs> Please, please get her that James Bond villain role. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, four for me. Now, that's how much we liked the film. How accurate of a spy film is this? Uh, I think the easiest starting point for us to go. Now, this is our park bench rating. And this is a single rating we're going we're gonna to give um, for just the, the accuracy and sometimes the amount of tradecraft we see in the film. I think the easiest place to start here is to compare it to generally James Bond films. Um, yeah. And I'm yeah. right. And I think it's gotta be a cut above. It's definitely a cut above, right? Well, that's yeah. I'd like to think so. Okay. So, tra- and the thing is it's had, <laughs> maybe it's unfair, but it's had decades of James Bond films to go by and then therefore improve upon. Right. Yes. And also to play around with the tropes a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's that clever. Now this isn't necessarily tradecraft, but it's just fun where uh, after uh, poisoning solo, she says, what are you doing? And he says, Oh, this has happened to me before the last time I hurt my head. So I'm going to lay down <laughs> in advance. And as soon as I can feel the poison coming on, um, I'm looking at uh, what what our traditional ratings have been for Bond movies. Uh, we we have a 2.5 for uh, from Russia with Love. Um, so just a little bit below the fold. Let me see what else we've done. Oh, that was a parody. Spy who loved me. Ooh, we settled that one with a one. Uh, and tomorrow never dies. Also a one. So apparently, we thought from Russia with love was uh, was better than others. I'm a three on this movie. Do you think you can join me with that, or do you want to make a case for making yes, it I, higher or lower? No, I usually I usually defer to you on the park bench rating. Park benches, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. uh, that is uh, three park benches 
uh, and four, a daily double of four stars uh, in quality. Um, if you haven't seen the movie yet, audience, uh, sorry we spoiled it for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but check it out. It's a it's a it's a it's a fun romp that doesn't it it doesn't um, it it doesn't slide too far outside of you know into stupidity. <laughs> right. You know what I think? Rough. One of the things that that holds it together and keeps it from doing that is in the very beginning they kind of go out of their way to establish the cold war environment with the Kennedy speeches, right. Yes. And the checkpoint Charlie. So they couldn't get too well, they could, if they wanted to, but I think that might be one of the reasons why they held down the fantastical part of it a bit. You know, I saw a thing, right. And I agree with you. I saw a thing too, where, um, this was just something I, I read somewhere. Notice the events of this film happened in 1963. That's one year before the television series started. What happened in late 1962, Fred, in October of 1962? Actually, Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Not quite, not quite. But you're, you're, it's a Kennedy-related thing, a big thing. Uh, oh, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Supposedly, naval quarantine of Cuba ended on 20th of November. So what I had read was that uh, this movie is also trying to kind of suggest that the the reason the CIA and the KGB are maybe a little bit more open to working with each other is because in the, in the movie, even though we don't necessarily talk about this, this is right after the, the crisis, right mm -hmm. after possibly the closest we've ever come to global nuclear war and that that idea was in the filmmakers heads of why would the CIA and KGB maybe actually look at some real politic and say like, okay, even though it's fictional, but in this yeah. fictional universe, like maybe this was the warning sign that said, okay, maybe we need to actually start thinking about working together against bigger yeah, threats. That's a good point. And I'll uh, even give you a, a more of a historical tidbit too. Mm. The conventional wisdom uh, of that standoff and why Khrushchev backed off was basically that it was a macho, as you would say, dick measuring thing, Kennedy standing up and Khrushchev backing off because we were going to take out their ships with the naval blockade. But the truth is different. Bobby, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, worked a back channel with the Russians and said, okay, listen, if we take our, if you take your missiles out of Cuba, we'll take our missiles out of Turkey that are pointed at you. That's mm -hmm. what did it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I hereby invoke Protocol 9. You gotta ask Mora to do it, though. Oh, uh, Mora, I'm sorry. Mora, could you please invoke Protocol 9? Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.